0: You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 7th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland, and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Lorna Maloney from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled Securing Thomond: The Impact of Surrender and Regrant on Gaelic Lordship, 1536-1569. to 1569.
1: The paper examines the rapid transformations in Thomund after surrender and regrant and the impact on Gaelic Lordships. It produces quantitative evaluations derived from mapping using historical GIS, demonstrating the loss of key McNamara tower houses with their subsequent reduction of status for this Lordship, in comparison to the O'Brien Lordship, the creation of new centres of lordship on the coast and the expansion of Gaelic lordship in the new shire of County Clare. Surveys of primary sources and cartography in the state papers lead to an evaluation of the known rapid disintegration of the residential stability and culture of the actions of these Gaelic clans when securing thomond. By examining the Gaelic lordships, we can see how Tudor policy operated on the ground and the impact on localised landscapes. Homogenising narrative such as surrender and regrant from Shabarti's uh, theories to explain this Gaelic history of lordship does not necessarily explain Ireland's transitional history or how it was anglicised with such speed. So securing thowment by surrender and regrant was part of Tudor policy. However, looking at Christopher McGinn's excellent essay in the historiography of the 16th century, we can see the role of William F. Butler, where surrender and regrant is a neat term established in the 20th century, and it, it's adopted really quickly as a solution to what happens with the Gaelic lords in the 16th century. It always puzzled me when I looked at the effect of surrender and regrant on the different lordships as to why there was different answers for different clans. So for the McNamaras, for example, who, who have built a great deal of castles, they, they, they're not on the map at all. And, and this is what my thesis is about, how their reduction and how their exclusion leads to the success of this new anglicising policy and how it happens so quickly. So the homogenising narrative of a transition in writing past histories, tracing events from the medieval to the early modern, has been used by great effect by writers of the Tudor conquest. So uh, this one-size-fits-all surrender and regrant policy is great when you look at it, but when you see what's happening on the ground, it doesn't really work so well. So securing Thomond through the exclusion of the McNamaras ensured a phase of Tudor policies of presidencies, shiring, taxation and the Gaelic lordship of Clan Cullen never happened and a new baronial landscape did. It also involved co-opting and changing centres of lordships creating new centres and ensuring that Gaelic Protestantism in the guise of the 4th Earl of Thomond, Dunnock the Great Earl emerged, and he could consolidate these processes in the 16th century. To begin with, the fact that castles were noted and shown that this was keeping with Henry VIII's desire to castellate the coastal regions of England can be seen by his policy which saw a countrywide initiative showing where castles were to to be sited. So, in 1539, Thomas Cromwell ordered that certain, quote, sad and expert men of every shire in England being near the sea to view all the places along the sea coast, where any danger of invasions is to be and to certify the said dangers and also best advises for the fortification thereof. And that's the map from Henry, the, that was brought up to Henry VIII, and he, they exaggerated the cliffs, they exaggerated the harbours, and the castles on this map are half made. And when you look in detail, you would think all the maps were fully made. But when you see this policy, is actually he's showing where he wants the castles, where the castles are half constructed and so on. So it's really valuable. So this isn't a foregone conclusion map where all the castles are showing in existence. It's showing you a plan of castellation to, to um, support the coast. So securing Thomond then would involve further castellation, not less of it, and it, it would ensure that Ireland did not pose an asset to European countries or a foothold for European invasion. We have to readdress what securing Thomond was and the effect on Gaelic lordship and what roles the Gaelic lordship played in this themselves. They cannot be treated the same as if uh, equal as if they reacted all the same way, and we can see this by how they function under Tudor Crown administration. Henry VIII, on the advice of Saint Leisure, gave titles to some in Thomond, and this had the impact of raising up some and ignoring the Gaelic lordships such as the MacNamara's. So. The, the O'Briens were converted into from the King of Thomond to the first Earl of Thomond and the Baron of Inchiquin. Henry gave Morrock's loyal nephew, Donach O'Brien, the lifetime title of the Baron of Ibrican on the understanding he would succeed from the first Earl of Thomond and ennobled his uncle on the, his maternal side as the Earl of Cl- Clannaricard. Just one of the McNamaras, Shearga McNamara, was knighted as one of the O'Grady's at Greenwich Pallet in in 1543. All the titles were of lifetime duration, which was unusual for an earldom, but not for a knighthood. A knighthood would only ever last for a lifetime, but an earldom was usually considered to be hereditary. But in this case, it was very clear that it wasn't. And this is where the impact of surrender and regrant really kicked in. Dunnock O'Brien's brother, Donal, and I'm grateful to Kenneth here because if I read that Donal is a half-brother of Dunnock anymore, I think i lose my reason because Donal is a full brother of Dunnock. And he's not an uncle or he's not a nephew. He's, he's a full brother of Donal. And Donal had been previously knighted prior to surrender and regrant in 1543. He already had a knighthood. You know, but Morrock's title was on the agreement that Donagh would, his nephew, would succeed. This immediately had an unsettling impact on Thomond, as Donald would have considered himself as having an equal right to succeed his uncle, Marek the Tarnished. And it's at odds with primogeniture, which was eldest son inheritance, which was promoted as part of the surrender and regrant, and the means by which Brehan law-style inheritance could be eradicated. So policies like this were immediately not consistent and were linked to costs. You know, what's the best way to do this? What's the most economical way maybe to do this? Gaelic lordships were not without outside influence prior to this. The O'Briens had been educated in England in the 1530s and I got this from the biography, the dictionaries of biography, where, where they had a strong history of being educated in England from the 1530s. Dunnock, with his title of the Baron of Bracan, was adapting his residence at Clon Road and culturally had adapted outside because he'd married into the butlers seeking to further his interests um, he wanted the minute he got the on his on his uncle's death in 1551 he wanted that converted into a or into a into a hereditary title and Donald O'Brien, um, attacked him at Clon Road, and he died seven weeks later of his injuries. Donogh's loyalty to the was well reported, but um, Donal then took on the role of a Gaelic chieftain, and he was he was inaugurated. The McNamaras play the role of being on both sides. So Connor O'Brien is supposed to take over as the third Earl. He does not. He's not allowed to. And it would be five years before he would be able to be take down that role in St Mary's Cathedral. So the McNamara's, the situation on the ground, they they have to often like we just show it map wise. This is the situation map wise. There's no evidence of the McNamara's on that map. The. Earl of Thomond is there. We know it's not 1569 yet. Clare isn't mentioned, the shiring of the county Clare. So it is part of Connacht, however. And that confused me as to why is it part of Connacht. Well, it's part of Connacht largely because one of the aspects of Chancellor John Allen is in 1546, he's complaining about the two Munsters and he's saying you've got to split them up. You can't have the Earl of Desmond, the Earl of Ormond, the Earl of Thomond, all together as a melting pot. It's just too much, and they're all. It's causing, you know, an awful lot of trouble and hassle. And in 1546, he must obviously get some way in his policy in the fact that Connaught then is the home for Thomond, so it'll be Thomond and Connaught for these years, rather than Clare becoming part of Connaught. And it's it's nearly like that as far as Edward White's survey in fifteen seventy four, where Thoman still has this separate identity and it's not yet fully formulated into the Shire of County Clare, even though it's known to, to officials and administration as County Clare. So the McNamara's ancestry it was, they did try and get the Baron of Clan Cullen for them. St. Leisure did did um, promote that an Irish captain called Shear de McNamara, bordering on the said O'Brien lands and Lord of Clan Cullen in Thomond, required us to write likewise to your majesty on his behalf to declare humble obedience to the same for further petition to advance him to the honour of Baron by the name of Clan Cullen. Completely ignored, even though... Quote, of McNamara ancestry and great swing in these parts. It further details the lands, quote, lie on the far, far side of the Shannon and St. Leisure wants to drive others of his sort and he was anxious to get this type of request granted. It was not taken up and there was not enough time before the ceremony conferring the titles in July 1543 to negotiate this further. Truder policy never included in making too many quote overmighty subjects, and there was a line on this where they were weeded out of ruling, and it was a queer, clear line on that. So nowhere on this map are the McNamaras mentioned, even though we know they would have bought kind to Clare as as a, a, to Clare Castle, the map marked there, and so on. So it's a significant loss of power from for this significant Gaelic lordship. The control exhibited can be seen by their 15th century castles bordering on O'Brien castles. So if they're missing in the literature, we can see where they were in the 15th century. You can see these are just the 15th century tower houses, not the 16th century tower houses. The purple dots are the McNamaras, the yellow are the O'Briens. And we can see just how much they control. It really gives you an account of, of what's going on. And if you can't see the map, you can see the graph of the McNamars are ahead of the O'Briens in their castle number building. And these are the others, the O'Connors, the MacLanceys, the O'Dees, the MacMahans, the O'Loughlins, the Daverns. So just to, to be clear on the amount of castles that they're built, they, they have a substantial... And they build them all in East Thomond. So it's quite a, a significant aspect. Now the importance of the titles and the fortresses and the defences can be viewed easily looking back at the other slides as well. I just want you to see where you see where the castles are marked in red. Well that's where someone has gone over those castles with a red marker. So this map could be earlier and the red marks could be later. These glosses could be done at two different times. It's felt that there probably could be done in fifteen seventy two when Connor has lost his castles. Connor the third Earl lost his castles because he went into rebellion, he didn't like the new presidency system adopted by Edward Fitton, and he drove him out of Clare Castle, which he was trying to adopt as a centre of administration. And uh, he had to flee to France, where he um, borrowed money off everybody. Uh, He had 200 crowns off the French king. He had 100 off the Spanish. He managed to tap um, the English fellow. I'm trying to think of him, Norris, that was supposed to bring him back to England. He took another, and yet he was considered simple in his talk. Well, he was very good at getting money out of them, I can assure you. I counted it up, and it was about 600 crowns by the time you had added up all the amount, and that was within eight days, August the 9th and uh, August the 16th. So he he duly came back into the fold, but he didn't get his castles back straight away. He had forfeited his castles when he went into rebellion. So this is very well what this impact was on this map, showing the ones that he'd lost, because he had been promising the castles and the ports, by the way, he didn't own these castles, castles that he didn't own to the Spanish king and the French king on alternate occasions. So um, though he escaped with his life, it would be a while before he was trusted completely again. And whether he ever was trusted again would be a matter. He was more seen as a risk to the continent than anything like that. So we can see that the map has been glossed because there's no mention of County Clare. The title of Baron of is actually there, so I had a check with that with Ken. But I just want to move on to exactly what's happening to the Gaelic lordship, the McNamaras, which are mapped in this Edward White survey. So normally you see this Edward White survey in a manuscript. You don't see it mapped. So this is just one of the baronies because I haven't all day to be talking here and boring the head off you, so I'd just like to show you what it looks like mapped. And it shows... This 1574 survey by Edward White creating the new baronial system in Ireland which is a transition in Clare and it's a transitionary phase. It has different names to your ordinary upper and lower Tulla and so on and this would have been the barony of Tulla Nanaspel. It had 36 castles in it and a variety of different owners. And it's by looking at the variety of different owners that you can see the losses incurred by the McNamaras. Because if you see the blue ones are the McNamara Tower Houses, but you can see the green ones, Tharlacc O'Brien, the the pink, the O'Grady castles, the light blue, the Baron of Inchequin has two of them, and O'Brien's Bridge and Killaloo. And, surprise, surprise, four of them, surprisingly, are owned by McMahons who normally would be along the coast by Clina and Carragher Holt and all along the estuary and up the coast. So the fact that we have MacMahons there is showing that there's a relationship between Conor O'Brien's family and the marriages, and he doesn't own those castles because he's still in disgrace in 1574, but he's not giving them back to the McNamaras. The McNamaras would have asked them to hold them for him, in agreements from the 1550s they were in rebellion in 1550 in 1550s and had supported Donald so would have lost a bit of ground we don't know how Bonrath was lost we know that it becomes into Thurlock O'Brien's hands from the 1550s so that's that would be in another barony the creation of which and i was amused to see the criticism of the notes of Edward White of saying well look that castle doesn't belong in that barony but these baronies are just being created at 1574. They're not created before then. So we, our, our baronies in Thomond, are not of antiquity. They use the Gaelic lordships to make the baronies and to prove the extents of them. And that was one of the aspects of it. Now the links to the O'Briens are important because Morrick O'Brien's mother was Reynolds McNamara, McNamara and um, This is the last McNamara to enjoy such powerful endogamous links and it does explain though why the McNamaras would have trusted the O'Briens to look after their interests with the English crown and wait so long before petitioning the king themselves through Saint Leisure. Their loyalty at times by backing the O'Briens in their civil strife in the 1540s and early 1550s did not serve them well. It relegated them to secondary lord status, and it's very clear in the compositions of 1585, which John McNamara refuses to sign, that they don't feel that they're of that lesser secondary Gaelic lordship status. They claim that they're controlling just as much territory, and if it's about that, why are they not being treated the same? So we can see how powerful the McNamaras still thought they were in the 16th century, but how quickly those power losses occur through social networks and and exclusion from the Tudor reform policy. As the Tudor policy goes on, it's not as conciliatory in their approach as St. Leisure may be. Bellingham shows that the Earl of Thomond and the Earls of Clanricarde are completely remiss in their duties in controlling their people, and that's back in the 1550s again. All the costs had to be sanctioned and usually paid for and claimed back. And the pressure of ensuring that the new Anglicised lords were playing and paying their part was essential. So Tudor crown policy hardened. And surrender and re-grant took a different turn. Within 1550 there was 8,000 pounds and 400 men from England. Brabazon subdued other um, Gaelic lords, and, who was the the Kavanaghs and the head of the powerful MacMurray Kavanagh dynasty. And there started to be a change in the whole thing where you renounced your Irish title and you received a, a, a royal pardon. You may not receive a royal title. So there's changes. Surrender and grant is not the same for everyone. And more violent approaches were taken to deal with the Gaelic lords to establish anglicised lordships. And this occurs in Thoman as well. Um, They start to look for heraldic evidence and they start to do that from 1552 and suddenly it becomes important to have a coat of arms and again it's another layer on top of your nobility. The dispossession of the monastery's wealth is is very interesting because Brabazon had ordered the stripping of all the bells throughout Ireland which were to be sent to England for melting down and used by the military, but none of the metal appeared to make its way to, to Ireland. And there's lots of financial pressures involved in trying to make this work, so it's not a simple matter of being able to apply violence and to make that, to make that work. So Cusick noted in the 1550s that the Irish captains do not stir and there be few counties in Ireland in better quiet than they, they uh, famous last words. There was just a, a, an amount of violence in between 1556 and 1563. It exemplified the increasing employment of English military. Sussex was frequently accompanied by, by Ormond and frequently used the Elizabethan policy of creating... A rocking stone or unstable political system the resulting instability amongst chieftains facilitated outside uh, rule to have to rule in thomond and the by the time connor o'brien had succeeded as uh, the third earl of thomond it is noted that the annals note the irish of noble banva were seized with horror dread and fear and apprehension of danger so these, this military world is opened up in 1550 and 1560. And, but yet, the Lord Deputy Sussex, who's here in Ireland, is sponsoring a child of the McCarthy moor, giving a chain of gold and a pair of gilt spurs. So this involvement with the traditions of Gaelic lordships featured in securing the Gaelic lordships as well. So it's really, on one side, it's one thing. It's whatever really works. But the two McNamaras, as I've said, keep switching sides. They're constantly blamed for keeping idle men at war. And it's noted that they're nourished in idleness. And Sussex tries to persuade the Gaelic lords to keep no more men at war. So just to have a look at really what's happening with the coast quickly, because I did extend the paper to to 1599, Because what did happen with an impact of surrender and regrant was a focus on the coast that had not been evident before. And I wanted to know where the 16th century castles were built. Because in Ireland, there's a great deal of castles built in the 16th century and a great deal of them in Thomond. Though this practice of building these types of castles is dying out everywhere in a lot of places. But in Thomond it's really taking off. So in, a, in a, an antique map of 1610, you, there's tiny little bubbles showing the, the maps, but I would have mapped these using historical GIS, and I wanted to see were they in any way accurate, and they are. They, this is not all of them, this is some of them. So these are the coastal 16th century maps, adapted and used, and some of them newly built in the 16th century. So what is going on there with moving the centres of lordship? Well all the outside influences of the Spanish invasions all the fear of the Spanish invasions so fear is enough to encastellate the landscape it doesn't have to happen for you to want to build a big line of castles and to take control of them all over the coast so although some of these are already there they're adapted and they're used in different ways so there are three centres of Lordship, smaller lordships that emerge in the, late, from 1585 onwards, the O'Loughlands, Thurlock O'Brien, Daniel O'Brien, who takes over the MacMahon castles. And the violence attached to these is on the big castles where you've got uh, Dunbeg, Tromra, Dúnagore, all these sites of extreme violence. And needless to some extent, like the Turlock O'Brien becomes a knight. He is the grandson of Donal O'Brien. Ty was his father who, I got a good reference of Ken, he died in his bed and they were all surprised in 50 that he did die in his bed because he was such a violent, warlike man he should never have died in his bed of all of them. His son Turlock is equally as bloodthirsty and Turlock is responsible for working with Boethus Clancy and Captain Mordant, and uh, a great deal of the Spanish are executed. And even the landscape holds the name Canuck, Hill of the Hanging. Spanish Point is not actually a place, it's actually Freya Point. Spanish Point has been used ever since that. So it has such a dominating impact on the landscape. And unfortunately we get to know that they must have stripped them of their belongings and the sea just didn't do that because there are accounts from Tudor writers of pamphlets in the 1580s who are encouraging people to colonize Ireland and come to Ireland and say there's no fear here, they won't support the Spanish and they stripped the Spanish so much of their clothes that clothes were going cheap as the skins of beasts. So these accounts show that just ex- that kind of, you know, you might hear that they didn't do anything to the Spanish and they were made to do it and all this. Well, they certainly would have stripped them of their belongings in any case. Now, the Olachlans are very interesting in this in how they're emerging. And what proof have we of that? Well, we have a great deal when we look at the tower houses and so on. So Holt is where Daniel O'Brien gets to take over because Dunnock O'Brien um, makes sure that he eradicates the MacMahons. He, uh, he takes, he takes uh, reprisals on them, Dunnock being the fourth earl, and hangs them face to face. And Daniel gets to keep, his brother gets to keep um, Carragaholt, which was a MacMahon castle. Dunagore. this is Brendan Collins' award-winning photograph, and it looks so... Harmless, really. The Gores tried to lay claim to it in the 17th century because it had, it sounded like gore, and uh, they actually would have tried to put it underneath their possessions as if they had ancestral rights to it. But Duna Gore has been there for a great deal, long time, and the O'Connor's were very much prevalent in this area. And from 1582, there are agreements with Torlach O'Brien, and they're ousted, they're kicked out of Doha and Ennis Diamond is built and Dunagore is, is taken too. Tromer Castle is also a site of, uh, you know, on the coast that's, that's used to, to create these centres of lordship as well. But what's interesting here, and I've nearly finished, you'll be glad to notice, Newtown is a, one of the 30 round tower houses in Ireland. There are 30 round ones out of all of them, and this is one of them. And this was built by the barons of Inchequin, in O'Loughlin territory in the 16th century. And Glenina, the 16th century L-shaped tower houses. They're adapting these tower houses. They're taking on new aspects. And what's the significance of the O'Loughlins? The O'Loughlins have become the princes of the barn. They're in the barony of the new barony of the Gragans, which is in the top. Well, they replace the roles that the McNamaras may have had and they support the O'Briens as a sub, a good dutiful sub lords in keeping control of the coast, but also taking, becoming upwardly mobile within a Gaelic system because they stay Catholic until quite a long time, and they stay quite successful as well with their their cluster of tower houses being built and so on. So just going back to the the centres of lordship. These are fairly. There's, these are like twelve kilometres always in radius. They're always a certain amount. They're planned. They're how they annex other tower houses is planned. How they take them over, and they have significant impact for the seventeenth century for the conveyancing aspects that start. The Owen McSweeney loses Kilkee in fifteen eighty agreement, so it completely angles, this type of effect or impact of surrender and regrant completely affects the whole impact of Thomond. so I'll just finish with one little picture of Donald O'Brien I was just going to go into a load of poetry about him and how he was Anglicised, I'm not going to do that, and the fourth Earl of Thomond is where he's completely Anglicised he's in English dress he's using English laws he's adapting, he's able to, he's bilingual, he's able to get them to sign agreements and it becomes a, a literal world of losing your land rather than a violent means of doing so. So that's the impact of surrender and regret home. the moment.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts, from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.